Hello, and welcome to the Eclectic Vanguard. With me, Michael Brown. This is, of course, Radiolab 97.1 FM. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you had a good week. Uh, it was quite a, a busy week in a way. Uh, obviously, there was Valentine's Day which, you know, may or may not be of significance to you, certainly this year in particular. Valentine's Day, I think, is one of the holidays most affected, I would think, by coronavirus. Uh, I hope that that was okay. I mean, obviously, I know this goes out to university people particularly, and that most university people do not cohabit with their significant other. Obviously, if you're married or cohabiting in general, then I'd imagine that uh, Valentine's Day worked out pretty well. Obviously, you can't really go out, but at least you were presumably able to have some kind of date at home. Uh, but for all the people out there uh, who are in a relationship and not able to go out and, and see that person, then that would have sucked for you. So I guess that would have been a downer on your week, unless, of course, you broke the rules, which uh, I will pass no judgment on, because that's not what we do on this show. We talk about important issues. In fact, I would argue, really, that with uh, the controversial topics we like to cover in the show, this is very much a judgment-free zone. So, who knows? Maybe you did still have a Valentine's Day, and maybe the element of breaking the rules added something just a little bit extra to it. You know, because if we learned anything from Romeo and Juliet, it's that sometimes doing something that goes against what's considered socially acceptable just makes it a little bit more romantic. So maybe you were out there uh, discreetly climbing the, the trellis up to see your bow and the government weren't able to catch you and get you in trouble for it. And if so, well, how romantic of you? Of course, there was also, you know, it was, it was an interesting week because then there was uh, Pancake Day. Obviously, that's something which was in no way affected by coronavirus. It doesn't matter come rain, sleet, shine, or, or disease, you can always sit down and eat a massive load of pancakes. And, you know, it's a good thing we don't live in New Orleans, because I would imagine that for them, Mardi Gras just wasn't as exciting. I think, you know, having Shrove Tuesday principally center around just eating large amounts of, of pancakes was perhaps aiming a little lower than the uh, Cajun folks across the pond when they decided to have a massive carnival celebration uh, for Mardi Gras, but ultimately uh, we're the ones who worked out being okay because now we can do all of that without having to worry about uh, spreading a massive pandemic. And I can say that I had three pancakes and I honestly could have eaten more, but you know, I'm getting old. I want to keep an eye on my, on my waistline. Oh, maybe I should say what we've got coming up on the show. That would be a good idea. First of all, we're going to be speaking to uh, Peter Gaunt. We spoke to Peter Gaunt last week. Uh, he is the head of the Cromwell Association. And last week we were speaking to him about many of the criticisms uh, historically of Cromwell and, and the things he's done, Oliver Cromwell, obviously. And uh, the things he's done, we covered the topics of uh, Christmas, of his campaign in Ireland, and we, of course, covered his just the general accusation of him being a bit of a hypocrite by becoming Lord Protector. And Peter Gaunt had interesting responses to all of those things, you know, I could summarize it in the general terms of saying that there's always nuance to it. There's always uh, things that you can appreciate 
and understand the complexities of. Uh, and if you want to know more in detail, you can you can go back and you can find that. Uh, you can follow me on on Twitter first of all, uh, eclectic van, uh, just yeah, eclectic, spelled how eclectic spelled, and then just van, spelled how van is spelled. You can find if you type in the eclectic vanguard on YouTube, you can also find a link to it via Twitter. If, if you type it in on YouTube, you can find all of the uh, episodes so far, uh, all, all on there. Next after that, in about ah, I'm going to say probably thirty minutes past the hour, we're going to be speaking to Alex Aaron, who is the founder, or I believe co-founder, of Partners for Ethical Care and the sole founder of Gender Mapping. And I'll explain in a minute, uh, catch you up on that. But that was a conversation we had two weeks ago, mostly dealing with the rise of children coming to identify themselves as transgender. That was the subject of our discussion. It was a very interesting discussion. And like I say, I will just give a few more details on that as we actually uh, approach that conversation. Now, in case you can't tell by how little of a hurry I'm in to get on to the actual interviews, it's because the interviews ended up being slightly shorter uh, this week, and I didn't really have... There wasn't really enough room to continue a, another interview or, or slide another interview in there, so I'm just going to keep it as it is and just fill up the extra space with me talking about something. And it's, it's a good thing it was such an interesting week, because there was also Ash Wednesday, of course, uh, where Catholics put ash on their foreheads for some reason i don't know why but obviously uh, it, it leads on to lent which is where you are supposed to give something up the reason why we're supposed to have pancake day is because you eat loads of pancakes uh, and you gorge yourself and then you're supposed to fast in theory fasting means abstaining from food but usually people give up something else i mean they, they will give up you know some kind of food a lot of the time like chocolate but it's not Ramadan. Let's be clear on that. You know, you don't get people not eating food from uh, from sunup to sundown. Although I did hear recently that apparently the average caloric intake for a Muslim household goes up during Ramadan because there is no actual rule about how much they can eat after the sun goes down because the only rule is you can't eat while the sun's up. So a lot of them will actually end up eating huge amounts in the morning and huge amounts in the evening. And despite the fact that they're, they're fasting during the day, they end up eating more overall. So there we go. Apparently fasting is, well, it, it's never uncomplicated in any situation. So, you know, maybe it's appropriate that most people nowadays just give up getting up late or whatever else, uh, because that's that's much less complicated, I guess. It's a bit like uh, there's another example. Um, in Judaism, obviously, they, they have the Sabbath. And one of the rules is you're not supposed to cook things on the Sabbath. So what a lot of them will do, I found this out recently, they'll cook things um, on, on Friday and then they'll leave them on a hot plate overnight so that that way on Saturday they'll have hot food, but they didn't actually cook it on Saturday because like it's the, they'll say, well, it's the turning on of the thing and we turn it on on Friday. So if they turn the hot plate on on Saturday, that would be cooking and they can't do that. You know, so I guess the, the thing is, if you do have hard and fast rules, people will just find some kind of way around it. So your best bet is just to make up your own rules. And heck, if you don't want to do anything for Lent, well, that's that's perfectly legitimate, it seems, because a lot of people who do these kind of fasting things, whether it's on a weekly basis or a yearly basis, they then kind of try and work out loopholes anyway. So there we go. That was the, the week that was uh, Valentine's Day, Pancake Day, and Lent, all in quick succession, all leading up to Easter. So yeah, that's probably going to be the next exciting thing that happens. But I mean, heck, just what an exciting week. 
And what an exciting show. Let's talk about Peter Gorn, Cromwell Association. Uh, he, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. This was probably... See, I don't like to play favourites because I know what if someone else who I've interviewed listens to this and thinks, oh, that's not, that's not very nice. Why would he say that? But I do genuinely think Peter Gorn is my favourite person that I've interviewed uh, just because, well, the, the topic is so interesting to me. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. We, we start to... So last week we were talking about the criticisms of Cromwell. This week... It, we're transitioning slightly to talking about the the good things Cromwell did, not just like oh Cromwell's not that bad, but actually no Cromwell's more than not that bad. He's actually pretty good. Uh, so that that's basically the topic. And then moving on to uh, then talking about the uh, vindication celebration of of statues in the UK in in public areas, and obviously specifically uh, of Cromwell. But I do try to generalize it a bit because there is some relevance there with, of course, Black Lives Matter and the defacing and even tearing down of certain statues in the in the UK. So we had that conversation and I, I thought Peter had some very interesting thoughts there. So with that said, uh, this is just finishing up the interview. So I will leave you with uh, Peter Gaunt uh, from now until the, the end of the discussion. It was a very interesting one. This is uh, Radio Lab 97.1 FM. I'm Michael Brown, and this is the Eclectic Vanguard. And here is Peter Gaunt from the Cromwell Association. I hope you enjoy. Uh, and I'm now kind of inclined just to give you a bit of a free uh, free space here to insert what you think are the best things about Cromwell and the things about Cromwell that should really be celebrated. Because obviously you've explained why, uh, like I said, what I would consider to be the most immediate criticisms are at least nuanced. But uh, what are some reasons why you think Cromwell is someone who really should be uh, celebrated and seen as, as quite a good person? If you, well, partly that will depend on your interpretation of Charles I mm. and Charles I's approach to government. If you believe that Charles was uh, not acting within the letter and spirit of the laws and the unwritten constitution as king, mm. then you would tend to praise Cromwell as one amongst many who rose up against Charles I in defence of parliament and parliamentary liberties, and indeed wider liberties. And that could be pushed too far. Cromwell wasn't a Democrat. He wasn't truly an egalitarian. I accept all of that. But uh, I believe that uh, England... And Britain was heading somewhere, were heading somewhere pretty grim under Charles I, and that Charles I was breaking the rules, and thus I'm a parliamentarian. That's where my sympathies lie. Mm. Like, Cromwell was a very successful parliamentarian. I would praise him as a skilled military leader and as a general, probably the most consistently successful military leader in general on either side in the course of the English Civil Wars. I think he was also a reformer. He went through, before the Civil War began, he went through a religious conversion experience and thereafter he believed that uh, he was following God's will. But more importantly, he believed that he had a duty as a successful general and then as a rising statesman and ultimately as head of state as Lord Protector to push through a programme of what he tended to call godly reformation. Now, we might not sympathise with all aspects of that. We might think that his... Uh, drive against immorality we may or may not sympathize with that probably in 2021 most of us wouldn't worry too much about that but there are other aspects cromwell did favor religious plurality at least for protestants 
he very different from the preceding system and the preceding um, royal government. He favoured religious plurality for Protestants. Just about any brand of Protestants could worship in their own ways with their own congregations. Mm. Very different from the Tudors and from the early Stuarts who did persecute Protestants who wanted to break away from the state church, the Church of England. Mm. Uh, And so religious plurality, religious liberty of tender consciences, as Cromwell refers to it, I think is uh, something to be applauded. And he also wanted a degree of judicial reform. Um, As he said, the the laws, the existing laws were too harsh to hang a man for sixpence. Mm. Isn't God's will, he says. Now, he doesn't get that far, but during the 1650s, he tries to reform some elements of justice to moderate the harshness of the judicial system. He does try and bring the country together in a liberal with a small L way, a liberal way, and bring the country back together after the uh, the catastrophe of civil war. Healing mm. and settling, as he said during the 1650s, would be one of his main targets. Uh, he does want to be inclusive. He uh, does extend liberties beyond uh, even the Christians. He pushes to make it clear. It's sometimes called the readmission of the Jews mm. in the 1650s. That's a misnomer, in fact. Uh, there were already Jews who had settled in in England and who were practicing their religion and working in England. But Cromwell puts that or tries to put it on a more open, firmer standing that those of the Jewish faith and Jewish religion could move to and settle uh, in England and could have their own synagogues, could have their their own professions. So on all those grounds, I think he is a a reformer in some ways as a man of his times. In other ways, I think he's a man ahead of his times. But he is flawed. And I would wish to stress that uh, he's no he's no plaster angel. Uh, he did have um, flaws as well. In some ways, he's a man of his time. Uh, in other ways, he's a man ahead of his time. Yeah. Even I accept the balanced view. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, and obviously extending from that is the fact that you know to go back to the original debate that started us off uh, that. He is somebody who does have, you know, a couple of statues celebrating him. And of course, some people are saying that shouldn't be the case. And obviously, you, you've said that you do not agree with with tearing your statues down. What do you uh, what do you think it says, I guess, more abstractly about society that there are people who are unwilling to countenance having these statues celebrating an individual who, while flawed, did do a lot for the good things in this country, did do a lot with regards to the fact we now live in a secular liberal democracy obviously Cromwell was not purely secular purely liberal or purely democratic but he pushed us in that direction what do you think it says that we are now unwilling to celebrate somebody so instrumental in that move because of a few aspects of you know where he was flawed relative to our contemporary standards well I would say first of all as a historian I I would say this isn't something new Mm. right from the beginning from the time that Cromwell, the Thornycross statue of Cromwell was erected uh, on Cromwell Green outside the Palace of Westminster in the 1890s, right from the time that there was a statue proposed for Huntingdon, his town of his birthplace, and was refused by mm. the town council and people of Huntingdon, and it was erected down the road at St Ives, right from the time when the statue of Cromwell was erected in central Manchester. Uh, he was a controversial person. Uh, The Irish community in Manchester in the Victorian period clearly did not welcome a statue of Cromwell 
in the centre of Manchester. So it's it's nothing new, and I understand entirely what's going on. And in many ways, I sympathise with uh, many of the protests that we see, and the protests have inevitably been focused on statues, and I can understand that. And in some ways, as a historian, I welcome the protests, I welcome the debate, I welcome the issues and the questions that spring up around them. What I can't welcome so much is, is the, the destruction or deliberate vandalism of statues. Uh, I think there are better ways of educating people about the controversies that surround the people who are being commemorated in statues. And I think rather than than the the destruction that we've seen, the toppling of statues, rather than the uh, vandalism that the statue no longer in the centre of Manchester is now outside at Withenshaw in Manchester. That was defaced and daubed a few months ago. Rather than that, what I would welcome is an informed debate, uh, maybe with interpretation about the individuals. I mean, one way we uh, as the Cromwell Association we we don't erect new statues they're fearsomely expensive and they're bound to be controversial almost but what we do go for is interpretive panels and we've done a lot of those what i would want mm. is a better way to inform people who might see the statue and might visit the statue or just happen upon the statue is an interpretive panel putting out uh, more about the person what they stood for what they did their good points and their bad points and how we in the 2020s would reinterpret and and have different views uh, about what they did and perhaps different views from the people who originally erected those statues or had them put in place. That's what I would favour as, as a historian rather than defacing and destroying them. But I perfectly understand why Cromwell and others are controversial figures uh, and I don't dispute that at all. Yeah, so uh, I guess one Final question, which I think might be interesting just to contextualize things. Do you think that there are uh, people who are so unambiguously bad that uh, then you would say that they shouldn't be celebrated? So I guess to what extent is this about Cromwell not actually being that bad of a person? Or is it more a case of, well, even if he was a very bad person and, you know, uh, in, of course, well, another example would be people in the UK who were more singularly involved in the slave trade obviously in in the us examples of people who fought and died for the confederate side in the civil war which was of course the side that was about ending uh, continuing slavery uh and of course there are even statues of people like lenin who could be considered controversial do you think there are people who uh i guess obviously there's the practical example of course you could say hypotheticals you know mm. like the statue of stalin or something do you think there are people who are bad enough that then we would say that we should take down their statues? I guess there are. Um, one of the issues that even your question raises, of course, mm. is that things go in fashions and phases. Um, and at the time, not only Lenin and Stalin and others, um, and those have now, well, they've some gone in some places, but not others, but things go in circles and cycles. Uh, historical reputations change. So I think we, we're we on slightly thin ice there, but yeah, I'm guessing I would agree with you on the, the implication of the question. There are perhaps some people who are so much beyond the pale that we just wouldn't consider erecting a statue. And if a previous generation erected a statue, it would be so awful that we would get rid of it completely. Maybe, I can't imagine uh, mm. statues of Adolf Hitler 
yeah. in the world. Uh, but there are others who certainly in their day and beyond their day were revered. Uh, the yeah. move against Stalin, of course, didn't begin until well after his death. Uh, Lenin is still a hero. There are certainly still statues of Lenin yeah. in what's now Russia and other parts of the ex-Soviet Union. He is still a hero. Um, I'm guessing there are some, uh, but I don't think Cromwell is one of them. Yeah. Okay. Controversial, mixed. I understand the debate, but I don't think he is so of such a, uh, a, a person, such a record that he should be beyond the pale. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of a good uh, closing uh, or way to end. But do you have any, I guess, other closing thoughts? I don't think so, other than um, please think about joining the Cromwell Association. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, Members are welcome. Uh, and we we encourage free debate. Yeah, and I'm sure uh, people can find it by Googling it. I assume it's Cromwell. Well, what, what's the uh, web page? Uh, if you just type Oliver Cromwell into Google, it's I think we're at olivercromwell.org. But if you just type Oliver Cromwell, yeah. the Cromwell Association into Google, it will come up. Um, we're a, we're not all academics. I am one, but it's a, a very mixed body. Those who are interested in Cromwell, Cromwell's life and times, the Civil War and that age uh, and all sorts of people are members mm. and, and we welcome new members. Yes. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Peter Gorn. That was really interesting again from the Cromwell Association. Uh, thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much. A pleasure. And that was Peter Gaunt from the Cromwell Association. Again, this is Radio Lab 97.1 FM, the Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown. I've got a bit of a dry mouth, so I'm going to have to apologise if there's some weird uh, mouth noises uh, appearing. You know, ultimately, I do just sit here and record this in my uh, at my desk with my regular microphone. And unfortunately, yeah, I'm sure that the professional uh, DJ microphones they have in the studios, which you're not allowed to go into during these COVID-19 times. Uh, they probably have magical uh, mouth sound dampening software. But unfortunately, my microphone, I think it picks up all the uh, mouth sounds in all their unnecessary vulgar glory. So I will apologize for that. Uh, but hopefully it will not distract you from the importance of these discussions being had, these topics being discussed, and that you will be able to get a lot of interesting questions, I guess, and to mull over those those questions yourself. I don't think any of this really is about trying to tell people what to believe about Cromwell. Ultimately, you can make your own decision up about that. And that's the thing, that's kind of what I like about this discussion. Maybe that's why it is my favourite discussion, because the conclusion here isn't, oh yeah, Cromwell was totally awesome. It's more like, well, was Cromwell totally awesome? It's the kind of, the placement of the was helps a lot. You know, it's not Cromwell was totally awesome, it's was Cromwell totally awesome. And that allows you to answer that question for yourself. Uh, he was part of, of some various social movements, which, uh, and kind of social forces, which might be considered dodgy by today's standards. Obviously, Puritanism was a thing at the time, Cromwell was associated with that. And, you know, nowadays, you call somebody a Puritan, that's that's not considered a compliment. You know, we don't we're not big on purity nowadays in in society. So, you know, the, these ideas have evolved over time, and therefore we might say that you you don't like Cromwell because of that. Alternatively, you might say, hey, you know, King Charles he he wasn't so bad. Uh, you know, he he wasn't a real tyrant, and you might have an opinion like that. So it kind of comes down to: Do you think the things Cromwell did that were supposedly good were that good? Do you think the things Cromwell did were supposedly bad were that bad? I guess. 
thank Cromwell, if nothing else, for the fact that uh, Christmas was not as negatively affected as it could have been because Cromwell said, hey, you know, we're not going to have a big public celebration of Christmas. Uh, and yeah, the, that means that he was pretty, pretty far ahead on the social distancing thing. And he definitely distanced Charles I's head from his body. Uh, but I also think this idea of statues, it, it's very interesting to me. I think especially because I do worry, and this comes back to the, the point of, of me being interested in discussions and questions uh, about certain particular social issues, that a lot of the pushback against certain statues in public spaces and things like that is, is more about people not being willing to tolerate moral ambiguity in public spaces. And I think that's concerning. Everybody should really be able to accept that a lot of the people who are going to be celebrated are going to be people who have done some bad stuff. And the question is, it's kind of funny because when we did the uh, the film review back in uh, New Year's Eve, one of the things I said is that I liked films that were morally ambiguous and didn't kind of try and give you all of the answers to the moral questions up front. And I said how it's funny that a lot of people nowadays seem to be morally offended by films which are morally ambiguous. And I think you're seeing that in a wider political context with the attacks against these statues of people who are morally ambiguous. Uh, and obviously attached to that is a certain moral absolutism. Like people will try to draw an equivalence between Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler because Winston Churchill, you know, said that it could be appropriate to use gas against the, the Boers in the Boer War. What they ignore is the fact that he was literally talking about tear gas. So he was basically talking about using non-violent, non-lethal gas in order to minimize casualties. And they'll turn around and say, well, that was just as bad as, as what Hitler did by gassing, you know, people with Cyclone B. So, you know, people ignore the reasons why things happen. People ignore the context of why things happen. And instead, everything just becomes like every single person needs to be criticized if they weren't absolutely perfect. And, you know, I think... Certainly, when it comes to somebody like Cromwell, yeah, obviously you can point out the bad things, but does it make sense to say, hey, we shouldn't be able to celebrate him in the public square because he did some bad things? I don't know. And I do think that this this idea of a slippery slope, it's technically considered a logical fallacy, the slippery slope, to say, like, well, if you do this, then, then you'll have to do this as well, or that this could lead to this, and therefore we shouldn't do this. But I do think there is a, a certain legitimacy to it in, in certain issues, because, you know, it, it started with confederate monuments and the confederate monuments whatever else you think about them they were put up not in response to the civil war they were put up mostly and this is a fact i found out most of the confederate monuments were put up in the 1960s directly as a response to the african-american civil rights movement and obviously the confederacy was a country formed solely for the purpose of the preservation of slavery so does it make sense to tear those statues down? Well, you know, there, there is a decent argument for it. You'd say, well, they were put there directly in response to and in opposition to African-American civil rights. They are put there to commemorate the existence of a country that solely existed to preserve uh, the institution of slavery. So you can understand why maybe you'd want to take that down. But even then, you can understand why people would be against that. 
Because as much as the Confederacy did exist to preserve slavery, it's also true that there is a legitimate cultural difference between the North and the South, and that many people are going to you know, view the Confederacy as much more of an a example of the Southern culture rather than, and that includes, you know, not just the bad aspects of the southern culture, but also the good aspects of the southern culture in opposition to the northern culture. So there's going to be plenty of reasons why somebody might say that actually they want to be able to commemorate the Confederacy, not for slavery reasons, but because of what it means for them personally as somebody who has an interest in southern heritage and southern culture. So even then, there, there is a debate. But then you move on to other issues, like somebody who is, uh, say, a merchant who happens to trade with cultures where slavery was acceptable. So obviously, you know, there are many of the slave traders in the UK or from England are individuals who were merchants that happened to encounter cultures like those cultures of West Africa where slavery was considered socially acceptable. And you say, well, does that mean that we shouldn't be allowed to celebrate them? You know, that's Again, you can see the arguments for both sides. You could say, well, slavery was, was so damaging from a long-term perspective in terms of how it did impact so many communities that, yeah, we, we should take those statues down. But then there's the other side of, well, at the end of the day, do you attack somebody for being a merchant, you know, a, a Bristol not allowed to celebrate their, their maritime history and their history of, you know, uh, being involved in transatlantic trade because West Africans who were involved in transatlantic trade thought that slavery was acceptable. And that therefore, many of the Bristolian merchants would have traded with those West African kingdoms um, and in doing so been involved in the slave trade. Well, there we go. That's the debate. And then you move on to, obviously, Cromwell. And you say, well, uh, he, you know, even though what he did was within uh, kind of the standards of the rules of, of war at the time in, in Ireland, uh, maybe by today's standards, it seems kind of, you know, genocidal. So actually, yeah, let's say that he, he was terrible too and we should tear down his statues. And then that's how you then end up with people saying, oh, we should tear down statues of of uh, Winston Churchill as well. Because, yeah, sure, the entire country rallied around him in our fight against Hitler's Germany. And he is just central to our legacy when it comes to World War II um, era Britain. But he had some racist views and you know even racist views for the time which i've heard people say you know like the 1940s were not that long ago and sure winston churchill did have some views which by today's standards would be considered bigoted but does does that mean we can't have statues of him because of some views he had that are completely unrelated to the reason why he is actually celebrated i don't know you know this isn't me saying in any case that all of these things are wrong it's more just me saying what i think should be obvious which is that there's always a debate but I do think an argument could be made that when there is a debate, it's probably better to err on the side of allowing that debate to continue in the public domain, which would probably mean not tearing down these things that do exist in the public domain. So that's why I do think it was interesting to have this, this uh, conversation about Oliver Cromwell and his relevance uh, with statues. Now, I will move on to Alex Aaron, as I said, uh, co-founder of Partners for Ethical Care and founder of Gender Mapping. Uh, and what she is focused on, if, if you didn't hear the episode two weeks ago, again, you can check it out on YouTube. Uh, if you just search for the Eclectic Vanguard, you can find it on the Twitter for the uh, at Eclectic Van. And also you can you can check out the website. This is, of course, Radio Lab 97.1 FM. 
So you can just Google the website and I think you can just find it by searching for the Eclectic Vanguard, again with me, Michael Brown. So you should be able to find it there. And of course you can always tune in if you want to not miss next week uh, at 8pm Thursdays, every Thursday, Radio Lab 97.1 FM, the Eclectic Vanguard with me, Michael Brown. So you can always find it and you never ever have to miss an episode. But if you did miss an episode and you didn't hear what Alex Aaron was talking about, then I will just briefly run you by that. Principally about how many young people who are coming to see themselves as transgender, and when we're talking about young people, we're talking about people who are below the age of consent, come to identify themselves as transgender. And Alex Aaron's argument, her thesis, I suppose, is that in many ways, when you look at the online environments that are fostering these changes in identity, you will find that they are, are very similar to the environments of online grooming. That is the, the basic argument. And I, I don't want to you know, make this argument for Alex, because I think she does a good job at presenting the case herself. Uh, she does point to some genuine behavior and tendencies and rhetoric, which comes across as genuinely cult-like in, in nature and in appearance. So I will just let you listen to that and, and hear what she has to say. Uh, and yes, this is Alex Aaron, uh, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, and again, this is Radio Lab 97.1 FM with me, Michael Brown, for the Eclectic Vanguard. What do you think is the, I, I guess, I, I can imagine what it might be, but what would you say is the incentive for these, uh, I guess, mostly older people in these online communities to try and specifically encourage young girls to see themselves as, as transgender. Uh, why is that an avenue they decide to take? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, first of all, I don't think that, um, and I don't think these people are transgender. I think that these these people are just, um, you know, they're just predatory males um, in the sense that, you know, predatory males would have in a former world joined coaching or they would have become priests, right, to get access to, mm. to kids. And, and that, that's what I think that, that people do. Um, you know, they, they, they will, you know, pretend to be anything to get access into a child's uh, inner circle. So, um, you know, when, when these, you know, they're not, they're not so old, but a 19-year-old and a 13-year-old, that's a very big difference in yeah. terms of a sexual, you know, where you are as a sexual being, let's say. And if you're already in this group, this this kind of this this LGBT support group or this LGBT friend group, the 13 year olds and the 18 year olds, they have really nothing to do with each other. You know, absolutely uh, nothing. You know, they, they couldn't have uh, less in common. Yeah. The only you know, the only thing that they have in common really is that they belong to this kind of loose acronym. Yeah. Uh, you. I've seen this term that you, you've used of um, glitter mums. And mm -hmm. obviously you did mention the idea of the transgender community as I think you said a glittery community. Uh, yeah. What is that idea of a, a glitter mum and how does that relate to um, this kind of allure of uh, yeah. getting people to identify as trans? So, well, well, glitter mums are, um, are really, it's actually not even a term that, um, that you know, I've actually used. Um, so it, it, it typically does describe uh, a, an older uh, trans-identified male 
when I say older, I just mean, you know, could be in their 20s, could be in their 30s. Yeah. And um, I can just read out to you a message that was on Twitter or that was made by uh, Monroe Bergdorf. So they said uh, to any trans kids who are out there and want support, please at me. I will answer all the messages and work to get you the help you deserve. You deserve to be happy. Then they, they continue further to my post regarding any trans kids who feel they have no one to talk to about how they feel. Please don't feel alone. If you ever need to talk, drop me a message on the Instagram. It's easier to track than on here. You got a big sister here always. Now, we have to critically examine exactly why. Um, it, let's say Munro Bergdorf was a female, right? Was just a woman, been a woman all, all their life. Um, teenage girls should not be writing to, to older people. Uh, vulnerable children should not be writing to older people um, to talk about their problems. Um, and it, it, it's, it's breaking the boundaries of what we know is safeguarding, really. Um, if... Yeah, of course, there are situations where children may need to turn to um, helplines or um, agencies for for assistance, but it should not be celebrities. I mean, it's it's really yeah. breaking down the barrier of um, of parent and child because you know um, you know one of them continues, and this is Rachel McKinnon. Um, Rachel McKinnon says, I want you to know that it's okay to walk away from unsupportive or disrespectful or even abusive parents. All I want to give you hope that you can find what, what's called, what you call your glitter family. We are out there. All the relationships we make in our glitter families are just as real, just as meaningful as our blood families. So okay. this is a very, um, I, I, I have to say that that makes my that makes my stomach turn a little bit. I mean, I was a young child. Um, I was a young 12 year old girl who was really confused about herself. And if someone had told me, you know, I'll love you no matter what, drop me messages, talk to me, I might have done that. Um, and especially because, you know, you're at that stage in your life where you're separating from your from your parents because it's natural, isn't it? We don't want yeah. to mate with our parents, right? So we're breaking out into the world and we're trying to be different. But we can't just kind of go anywhere. We have to, we have to, um, we have to understand. And I think that we have to also understand and recognize as a society when we're giving messages to children like that. You know, like you can have a glitter family, abandon your unsupportive parents. I mean, why would we? Why would we as a society be, be seeing that on Twitter? And why wouldn't we be doing anything about it? Uh, I mean, it, it sounds like, uh, in a way, so obviously that's talking about the idea that if you're, you know, many of these uh, online transgender personalities telling children that if their parents aren't supportive, they should uh, cut them off. But uh, something I've also heard from uh, a, a few prominent critics of some aspects of trans activism has been this idea that the, the current push to outlaw uh, conversion therapy when it mm -hmm. comes to being transgender, one mm -hmm. of the consequences of that might be that any sort of attempt to deal with a, a dysphoric child's emotional and mental turmoil that does mm -hmm. not involve affirming them could mm -hmm. come to be seen as not just abusive, but illegal. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that is a legitimate concern? Um, 
Well, I mean, I can really just give you an example from my my partner. Um, well, my partner in ethical care. So one of the okay. one of the women that I work with. Uh, so she is um, she's called Erin, and she's been quite uh, out about her her situation as being a trans child. Now, what happened to her, unfortunately, is she had a, a very terrible sexual abuse in a bathroom uh, mm. when she was growing up, and um, she. Uh, you know, for the next 10 years lived as a boy because she couldn't handle, she just hated her her body, her female body so much. And she would, um, you know, she's very open about this. She would take rocks and, and pound at her private parts. You know, she really did not want to be a girl. Yeah. Uh, and it was through uh, treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, um, talk therapy, you know, she was able to accept her female body and to kind of um reclaim it okay you know to to reclaim mm. this this thing that had betrayed her so much yeah. you know through this sexual abuse so and we absolutely can't outlaw these these uh therapies that we know are um are beneficial because what what is the okay the the harm of talking somebody through their dysphoria from the trans activist perspective is that they won't be trans, right? Yeah. So that's the that's the, the harm. But actually that just means they're going to accept their body and not be medicalized, right? Yeah. Um, whereas so the benefits, let's say, of you know letting the child uh, continue with their path of body hatred, uh, the benefit is that they'll be a lifelong medical patient and they'll have lots of surgeries. So I don't really I, I think that it's actually a perversion of the term conversion therapy um, to apply it to to children who just who are have you know who, who are displaying gender atypical behavior or hating their bodies it's not the same as conversion therapy yeah because obviously if so based on obviously the example you're describing is of somebody who goes through cognitive behavioral therapy to come to accept themselves as a woman mm -hmm. uh, as, as they you know as a biological female and that would mm -hmm. be considered by the you know present definition of conversion therapy as conversion therapy because you are yeah. do you think the the language is being controlled in quite a, a real sense to uh, i guess manipulate legitimate forms of inquiry yeah the language definitely is being manipulated i mean there's um there's there there should not uh, i don't think that there should be uh, i really refuse to to, to use um, language like uh, trans women, for example, I don't use it because I don't think that it's it, it conveys what I want to say. Um, so I also would not. I don't use the term detransitioner much. I actually prefer to use the term reclaimed women or reclaimed lesbian because I actually think that she has not detransitioned. She has reclaimed her body, reclaimed herself. Um, so you know, in terms of the language being controlled. Um, and it, it's very dangerous because you need to distinguish between genuine conversion therapy, which would be harming a gay person, yeah. or, you know, and, and potentially um, saving a, a girl from having her breasts removed and hating her, her, her body. Um, and it, it just, to me, it's like, how on earth can we possibly look at these two things, electroshocking gay people and helping a girl to accept her body? And how could we put them in the same, in the same breath? It just, it, it just kind of, I, I don't, I don't know how we got, don't know how we got here.
Hello, uh, just a brief interruption to remind you that this is the Eclectic Vanguard on Radio Lab 97.1 FM with me, Michael Brown. And I just uh, wanted to interrupt mostly to say that I do think this idea of uh, conversion therapy is, is a very interesting idea, especially seeing as there is a growing move in, in the UK to outlaw conversion therapy. And I have seen many gay people um, come out and say that they are against the, the laws which are being proposed to outlaw conversion therapy. They are opposed to these laws. I would actually, I'm, I would try and get one of them on the show because I think what they're saying is very interesting. Uh, basically, the the argument is that, and you pretty much saw it presented there, but I'm just going to kind of restate it just uh, because I think it's worth restating. When, when we're talking about conversion therapy, the, the traditional definition has always been somebody is gay uh, or, or lesbian, they are a man attracted to men or a woman attracted to women, and there is there is nothing wrong with that, obviously, on the surface. There is nothing that is not harming anyone, it's not causing any damage to anybody, it is not something which needs medical treatment. And yet, because of some people's uh, ordinarily religious persuasions, although it doesn't have to be, and certainly there is plenty of homophobia in the UK, even while the UK is largely secular, but they believe that these people do need treatment and they need treatment to stop them being gay or lesbian. And that, that is, of course, called conversion therapy. And the, the principal reason why that could generally be understood as being harmful is because being gay or lesbian does not need medical treatment. Uh, it is not something for which one should need therapy. You know, you can just be in love with and marry somebody of the same sex, uh, and there's there's no issue there. But, you know, some people have therefore decided that there is, there is treatment for this, and that is called conversion therapy. And obviously, again, there, there are issues about whether or not that should be illegal, because you could make the argument, well, uh, any, you know, perhaps it should be, some of it should be illegal, depending on how harmful it is, or whatever else, but I'm not going to get into that. The, the key issue is that lots of talk about conversion therapy now is uh, trying to also include this idea that trying to give therapy to a transgender person in a way that does not affirm their declared gender identity would also come to be considered uh, conversion therapy. And obviously the, the big difference there is that transgender people, it's generally agreed, need some kind of medical treatment anyway, which is, makes it very distinct from being gay or lesbian or bisexual. Because a transgender person, you know, one of the big debates and one of the big concerns around children being trans is that it is generally presumed that if somebody is transgender, they will want some form of medical treatment, whether that's uh, in general therapy. It can be, you know, that there are obviously um, gender reassignment clinics that will give children puberty blockers uh, and things like that. And obviously, as they get older, they can then get uh, sexual reassignment surgery. These are all treatments. And... The issue is that, that many parents are saying, well, I don't want to give my child a treatment that will, you know, let's say it's a, a girl, I don't want to give my child a treatment that will delay her maturing into an adult human female and likely lead to her eventually going on to invasive surgery to remove her, her breasts and potentially to fiddle around with her sexual organs to, you know, make them appear masculine or whatever else. You know, there, there are many parents saying, I don't want that. I want to give my child therapy that will make my child happy with who they are, 
that will stop my child being anxious and depressed about having a woman's body, but, but not in a way that will tell them that they are actually not supposed to have been born in a woman's body, that them being born in a woman's body was some kind of mistake or error that needs to be corrected through surgery. Uh, and the issue is, and that, that would be considered by many uh, trans activists as conversion therapy, because it's you're trying to deal with your child's mental anguish in a way that does not presuppose that they are transgender or does not presuppose that being transgender means necessarily having to have sexual reassignment surgery and things like that. So that's the issue. And I really do think it's an issue that is, it's a debate that's worth having. And it is interesting, I think, how this idea of conversion therapy, it does kind of feel like it is being snuck in because obviously I think most people have an intuitive understanding that sending a, a gay child to therapy to try and convince them to become straight I think most people would have a moral objection to that. But I suspect most people probably wouldn't have a moral objection to, and I don't know, I don't know, but I suspect there's a lot of people who wouldn't have a moral objection to uh, if a child thinks they're a, a boy when they've got a female body or thinks they're a girl when they've got a male body and they want to have, like I say, invasive surgery, invasive medical treatment to fundamentally alter their sexual characteristics, that uh, if their parents then say, uh, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you therapy, which is going to try and affirm your biological sex, that is going to try and treat you um, as a somebody who is, who is not born in the wrong body or anything like that, but somebody who is a male or a female and should be perfectly content as a male or female. Uh, I think most people would probably say that that is not something which is horrible or should be considered illegal. And yet, that is actually an idea. Many laws to outlaw gay conversion therapy are sneaking that in there too. And it could be the case that if you are listening to this right now and you are somebody who has had a child recently or is planning on having a child, that you may find yourself uh, in the relatively short term uh, living in a country where it would be illegal for you to try and give your child treatment that would allow them to be happy with their biological sex uh, and not feel that they need to get, like I say, invasive sexual reassignment surgery, that it can actually become illegal to give your child medical treatment that tries to deal with uh, anxiety and depression and things like that that emerge from gender dysphoria. So, you know, it, it's an interesting topic. It's one I think is worth discussing. And the, the rest of the conversation is just dealing mostly with the solutions and the wider implications of this issue. So I will leave you with, with that discussion to consider. Again, this is Radio Lab 97.1 FM with me, Michael Brown. This is the Eclectic Vanguard, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the discussion. So what it, it feels like one of the issues here is that there, there are lots of seemingly disparate threads happening here. There's obviously a, a kind of medical industrial complex aspect to it. There is uh, an aspect of social, uh, a, a social contagion, as you said, this idea of mm. these ideas spreading. Uh, and also I'm wondering, and I think you kind of hinted at this, but to what extent do you think this is about uh, you know, what feminists would call a, a patriarchy, trying to, mm. I guess, preserve traditional gender standards by telling people, you know, that, that they're women instead of men. Do you, do you think mm -hmm. that plays a role in it too? And to what extent do you think it does? Well, I think misogyny plays a whole thing in it. I think the whole thing is just deeply misogynistic. I mean, even to the point where Jazz Jennings is being told um, that um, their neo-vagina will function like a real vagina. So that is that is saying that a vagina is just a receptacle for penetration. 
Now, that's a shocking statement to make, right? That that's not what a vagina is, right? That yeah. that is, uh, so to understand that in the whole concept of, of, um, of misogyny is, is just, it's really quite horrible and quite frightening because when you when it boil when it boils down to it, you're you're saying to um to a woman um, that well this society is saying to a woman that um, her her she is completely and utterly defined by the way that she looks and the clothes that she wears and the way that she presents. Um, she can make money from that by selling her uh, eggs or her. Um, her pornographic pictures or her body yeah. or her womb through surrogacy. Um, you know, this, this whole, there's no doubt in my mind that all of these things are completely interlinked. And I don't know if it is patriarchy because I don't know if, if, it's, if that's the appropriate word anymore. Mm. I would call it sort of like a mass system of, of their systems of prostitution and their systems of, of misogyny in this. There's no, um, there's no doubt about it when you see, um, all of the different angles at which this is attacking us, hypnosissy porn, uh, you know, violent gonzo porn, you know, uh, and then you can sell your eggs, then you can be the surrogate. It's like so much is just commodification of women and mm. the woman's body as the problem and the woman's body as the marketplace. Uh, in what ways do you think there are immediate um, solutions, ways that people perhaps listening or, or just people who are involved can immediately start working towards uh, solutions and what organizations are there that are really uh, mm -hmm. working to, you know, fight this? Yeah. So I think that, um, I think that to, to all uh, boy men out there, um, I really think that men, you know, let's, let's start a revolution with men um, and let's, let's start with the pornography. Um, and if you are addicted to porn, um, it, I think you really need to take a, 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 no one's going to want to listen to a woman telling them to stop looking at porn, yeah. but um, have a look at Fight the New Drug and um, have a look also at Trafficking Hub and just see whether or not you want to be a part of this. If you're, if you're, if you're a man and you think, okay, how can I um, get involved? How can I not contribute to the, to the, to the body dissociation of, of females, right? Mm. And um, if you're a parent, there's resources online. You can go to uh, Partners for Ethical Care. You know, we are yeah. definitely there to support. There's online support groups like the Compassion Coalition. Um, again, there to support uh, uh, parents. Uh, D-Trans is a great one if you're detransitioning um, or if you're, you know, questioning whether or not this was a good idea. But I think that what everyone can do is not contribute to the rubbish. Uh, don't contribute to the lies. Don't contribute to this uh, way of um, of perpetuating nonsense. Um, just don't don't give in to any more of it. And I think that it's important for us um, to point out and not be afraid of pointing out misogyny in everyday life okay so that that could be um uh, somebody promoting prostitution or or somebody um promoting uh, you know body dissociation just don't contribute to it and say i'm not going to contribute to it um and i think that for young women it's really a difficult time to be um becoming a young woman and it's a really hard time to be a feminist um but women should find sisterhood in each other um, because the 
women's spaces, um, and when I say women's spaces, I mean red tents, uh, places where women can just be with other women. These mm. are really sacred and really important. And um, we need to go back to these coming these coming of age rituals that we used to have for women and for men. Yeah. Um, but I think it's very important that we there's something wrong. And I think everybody feels it um, mm. that we feel something's going on with 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 girls and with women. Um, and I would really encourage um, encourage women to connect. Uh, in person and also uh, online. Yeah, uh, that's, well, thank you. And I, I do think that is very interesting and especially the, the aspect of it, it can be a, a personal thing that people can, and I, I mean, also I, I would suppose, and I'll say this not least because, you know, this is the, the radio, this is obviously neutral. Uh, people can check all this out for themselves uh, and, you know, mm. see, see whether or not it's something that they're interested in and what side they fall on it. Uh, do you have any uh, closing thoughts on the matter? Um, I think that it's 2021 and I really just hope that we can all um, start to get a little bit more sanity about this, uh, these situations here. Um, and I really would love us uh, as a society to have a bit of a, a female uh, revolution, as in a revolution for females. Yes. Well, thank you. That's uh, Alex Aaron, again, co-founder and board member for Partners for Ethical Care and founder of Gender Mapping. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And there we go. That was our discussion with Alex Aaron. Again, I do find the topic interesting and it, it falls into another category of where it is a, it's a discussion. You know, this isn't necessarily saying that this is definitely happening and certainly not that it's happening all the time. You know, there's many different reasons why somebody might come to view themselves as trans, and there's also many different instances of how you might want to deal with that as a parent. And I would say, generally, it seems like people like Alex are trying to put the focus on allowing the individuals, the parents, the uh, children themselves to make these decisions for themselves, to put the focus on what kind of treatment they would want. Whereas it is true that there is a, a medical industrial com complex in this country and in much of the Western world, that is more about trying to take that uh, focus on the individual choice away from it, and rather say that being transgender, if, if you are transgender, you need to go on puberty blockers, you need to have this reassignment surgery, and that if you are a parent who is uncomfortable with that, then you are a transphobe or whatever else. And obviously, it is within this wider context that you do have people like J.K. Rowling coming out and saying that they have concerns about where the debate and where the discussion is going. And it's a, it's a discussion which I find interesting. Uh, it's a discussion which I'm happy to platform on this on this show and really, you know, let people think about it for themselves. Uh, so yeah, overall, I would say that I think I'm happy that I was able to do that with Alex and I hope that I will be able to have some other people on to talk about it. Again, I, I would like to get a transgender activist on the show. I just kind of shop around for different people who I can interview and a lot of the time I send out an email I don't get a response and unfortunately it tends to be the case that certain people are more willing to come out and express their ideas in the kind of free open debate than others and there are certain views which are you know people are more willing to come out and, and say what their opinion is and, and it does seem like many of the critics of uh, contemporary trans activism are those who are more willing to come out and actually have a discussion and have a debate Interviews ended up being a bit shorter, but, you know, I hope maybe you didn't mind me 
talking a lot about the various uh, holidays coalescing around early February. Uh, but apart from that, I would say that it was it was really good of you to to drop in and listen to the whole thing, uh, the whole show. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and I hope that you will tune in again next week. And until then, I have been Michael Brown. This has been the Eclectic Vanguard, and this is Radio Lab ninety seven point one FM.